Church, go and grab your Bibles, if you would, and open up to the book of Colossians. We're going to be in Colossians chapter 1 together. Uh, We started a a series going through Colossians verse by verse uh, about a month ago now, and so we're we're going to finish up the the, uh, first chapter, Lord willing, next week. So we're in Colossians chapter 1, and let's bow together again for a word of prayer and just ask for Lord's help on this part of our service. Father, we come to this part of the service uh, just like we come to every part, praying that Christ will be honored in everything that's said and everything that's done. Lord, we pray that as we work through this section of your inspired scripture that we'll be reminded of what you've given us in Christ and we'll be reminded of what you've called us to through Christ. And so, Lord, I pray that you would open our hearts, open our minds, open our ears, and uh, Lord, that you bring about eternal change through your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, church, we're in Colossians chapter 1. And the question we're going to be thinking about really uh, this morning and next week is, what is Christian ministry supposed to look like? What is Christian ministry supposed to look like? We, we understand that every Christian, in a sense, is called to ministry in that every Christian is called to spend his or her life, everyone who calls themselves a believer, we're all called to spend our lives serving King Jesus. Okay, and we, we recognize that within that, there are some people who, who desire vocational ministry, mean, meaning who desire to give their lives full time, either serving on the mission field or maybe planning churches or pastoring churches. But whatever that looks like for you, what does Christian ministry entail? Bethel Church in California has a school that they say will train you for ministry. It's called the School for Supernatural Ministry, which which has been said sounds like something out of Harry Potter, a school for supernatural ministry. But here's what they say they will provide in their training. They will teach you to, quote, do the Bible, how to practice his presence, how to heal the sick, how to prophesy, preach, pray, cast out demons, and so much more. You feel like an infomercial, like Billy Mays should jump out, and so much more. But is that what ministry is about? Is ministry about learning how to do supernatural signs and wonders and prophesy and cast out demons? What does Christian ministry entail? That's what I think our passage this morning will help clarify for us. We just came through verses 21 through 23 last week. And in those verses, Paul is kind of digging in a little bit more to the riches of salvation. That in Christ, you and I have been reconciled to God. And as we came to the end of that little section, Paul began to plead, in a sense, with the church, and his plea is that they would continue in the faith, that they would hold fast, because all the blessings of salvation that Paul's been talking about are only for those who continue, they're only for those who persevere in the faith. And then Paul said to that church, do not move away from the hope of the gospel. That's the foundation we stand on. Don't move off the gospel. But Paul added that the gospel that they had heard and believed was the same gospel that was being preached to every creature under heaven. In other words, Paul's reminding this church, the gospel message they had heard, the gospel message they had believed in was the one and only gospel that there is. Because he knew there were false teachers who would be coming into this area who would be saying, you haven't heard the whole gospel yet. We've got an extra point, a portion. We've got an added amendment. You need a little bit more. And Paul's reminding them there's only one gospel. It's the gospel they had heard. It's the gospel Paul was preaching everywhere. And think of the wonder of that because here we are 
2,000 years or so after Paul wrote this. Here we are 6,000 miles away from where the church of Colossae was. And yet you and I heard the exact same gospel they heard. You and I believe the exact same gospel they believe. You and I have gathered here today to worship the exact same Jesus that they gathered together to worship. And notice what Paul says about himself. This is at the end of the passage we looked at last week. Kind of sets the tone for this morning. Look at the very last phrase of verse 23. Paul's been talking about this gospel that's going to every creature under heaven. And Paul says, of which, talking about the gospel, of which I, Paul became a minister. So Paul's saying that he's a minister of the gospel. Now what image comes to your mind when you hear the word minister? Because the word that Paul uses here is really just the word for servant. It's the the Greek word for a slave. We, We get our word deacon from this word. It was a common household slave who would come in and clean the dishes off the table and clean up after supper. And so when Paul calls himself a minister of the gospel, He's not, he's not taking an exalted title for himself. He's just saying that he is a servant of the gospel. He's a servant of Christ Jesus. But again, the question is, what does that entail? What does it mean to be a minister of the gospel? Does that entail private jets and the lifestyles of the rich and famous? Does that entail rubbing shoulders with the upper echelon? Does that entail being cheered and applauded everywhere you go? Well, Paul answers that for us. I want you to listen to how he describes and defines his ministry. If you're in Colossians 1, we're picking up in verse 24, and we'll read down through verse 29. Colossians chapter 1, picking up in verse 24, Paul says, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you, and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ, for the sake of his body, which is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God, the mystery which has been hidden from the ages and from generations but has now been revealed to his saints. To them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom, that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. To this end I also labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. And what I want to do in this passage is I want to highlight, it's going to take two weeks to do it, but I want to highlight five traits of authentic Christian ministry. Five traits of authentic Christian ministry. And I think this is, I think it's a pivotal passage when it comes to understanding what it means to be a Christian. So we're all called to serve the Lord as followers of Jesus. What does that service look like? Okay, this passage is also really helpful in defining what my role is as pastor. So what are we called to as pastors or elders in church life? And then it's also helpful in understanding what what we're called to be as a church. Okay, so, so why do we do things the way we do as a church? Why do we put so much emphasis on some things and not do some things at all? Well, these verses really help with that. My original plan was we were going to cover all of this in one pass, uh, one sermon, but we're going to split it into two. Okay, so five points of authentic ministry. We're going to look at the first two this morning, and then we'll come back and look at the next three next week. So here's the first one. Number one, Christian ministry requires joyful suffering. 
Christian ministry requires joyful suffering. Paul has just at the end of verse 23 defined himself as a minister of the gospel. And notice how he follows that up at the beginning of verse 24. I now, I'm a minister of the gospel, so I now rejoice in my sufferings. Do you see how Paul joins together there two words that we don't normally join together? What are the two words he joins together? Rejoice and suffering. We don't normally join together rejoicing and suffering. And Paul doesn't say this because he was some sort of weird masochist, as if Paul enjoyed pain. He didn't. But Paul rejoiced that he could give his life on a ministry that was bigger than himself. Paul rejoiced that he could give his life serving Jesus. He rejoiced that he could give his life doing something that would matter for eternity. And if he so identified with Jesus that the world's hatred for Jesus ended up splashing out onto Paul, then Paul would count that as a privilege. That's why he would rejoice in suffering. He would rejoice in suffering because the suffering he endured was for the sake of Christ. I'll give you an example of this. This is from the book of Acts. Listen to Acts chapter 5. Verses 40 and 41. This is talking about the apostles have just been arrested and brought before the authorities in Jerusalem. And here's how they respond to the apostles. It says, and they agreed with him. That's one of their leaders. And when they had called for the apostles and beaten them, they commanded them that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and they let them go. So they've just been beaten. So they, that's the apostles, they departed from the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. That's exactly what Paul's talking about in Colossians 1. Listen, the greatest privilege of our lives now is to serve Christ. The greatest privilege of our lives is to identify with Jesus. And if identifying with Jesus is going to draw the ire of the world, if identifying with Jesus is going to bring suffering onto our lives, then what Paul is saying is, so be it. If me giving my life to serve Jesus and represent Jesus brings suffering, then I'll count the suffering joy for the cause of Christ. So Paul rejoices in his suffering. Think about why that would be. You know when the Bible in John chapter 3 says that we're in a world that loves darkness and hates light. When John said that, he wasn't just describing what the world was like 2,000 years ago. He was describing what our world has been like ever since the fall. So right now, we live in a world that loves darkness and hates the light, which means that our world right now doesn't hate Jesus any less than the people who killed Jesus 2,000 years ago. If Jesus were to come back tomorrow and live the same sort of life he lived then, and they could, the world now would kill Jesus just like they killed him back then. But the world can't get to Jesus now. 2,000 years ago, this world that hated the light could lay their hands on Jesus. And they crucified Jesus. But Jesus isn't here now for the world to grab hold of. And so it's like now Jesus' followers serve as his stand-ins. Our world can't get hold of Jesus, but it can get hold of Jesus' followers. Our world can't mock Jesus to his face, can't ridicule Jesus to his face, can't blaspheme Jesus to his face, can't arrest Jesus, can't persecute Jesus, but the world can do that to Jesus' followers. And so Paul is saying, hey, 
If, if me identifying with Jesus means hatred that is really aimed at Jesus ends up hitting me instead of Jesus, I'll consider that to be a privilege. If ire that is directed at Jesus splashes out onto me instead of Him, then I'll count that to be a joy. If I can represent Jesus to the point that a world that loves darkness and its hatred of Christ gets directed at me instead, then Paul says, I will receive that gladly. And, and by the way, when Paul talks about his sufferings here, this isn't theoretical for Paul, is it? Paul knew what it was to suffer. Go back and read Paul's story in Acts. When Paul met Jesus on the road to Damascus, it's like, it's like he hit the detonation switch on his old life. Everything that Paul had built, everything that Paul had been living for, it's like a mushroom cloud came up out of it. And everything he'd lived his life for was gone. He had been climbing the ladder of respectability in Judaism. He had gotten a name for himself. He was liked. He was revered. He was respected. And in the blink of an eye, all that was lost. Paul went from being respected to being reviled. Paul went from being loved to being hated. And that's how Paul spent the rest of his life. He walked away from everything. He would have been abandoned by his family and by his friends. He spent the rest of his life traveling around to very difficult to reach places and preaching and planting churches and strengthening churches. And he wasn't doing that by flying in private jets. It was a grueling life that Paul had committed himself to. He had lots of sleepless cold nights and lots of hungry days. He spent years of his life in prison. He was arrested time and time again. He was mercilessly beaten over and over and over again. You'll remember that on one occasion they stoned Paul and left him for dead. They thought that they had done away with him once and for all. But Paul's saying here that he didn't despise that suffering. Why did he not hate it? Why didn't he despise the suffering? Well, because this same Paul who wrote Colossians wrote the verse we started with this morning. It's this same Paul who wrote Philippians 1, For to me, to live is Christ. Paul meant that, that his whole life now had been redirected toward Christ. He saw everything in life through the lens of knowing and glorifying Jesus. And so if knowing Christ, living for Christ, making Christ known, meant that Paul would have to endure persecution and suffering, Paul was more than willing to endure it. It's like the old Jim Elliot quote. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Paul was willing to give up all the pleasure and all the enjoyment for the eternal value of knowing Christ and making Christ known. Listen to how Paul describes his ministry in a few different verses. This is 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 10. Paul says, Therefore I endure all things for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. So what was Paul willing to endure all sorts of suffering for? He says, I'll endure all things for the sake of the elect. That's, that's the people that God chose in Christ before the foundation of the world. And Paul was willing to endure all kinds of suffering to get the gospel and to see those people come to Christ and to build those people up in the faith. Listen to how he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians 12 verse 15. Paul says, and I will very gladly spend and be spent for your souls. Though the more abundantly I love you, the less I'm loved. What's Paul willing to spend his life for? He's willing for his life to be exhausted for the sake of their souls. Listen to him in Philippians chapter 2 verse 17. 
Paul says, yes, and if I'm being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your fate, I'm glad and rejoice with you all. He's describing his life like a drink offering that's being poured out. His life's being poured out on the sacrifice of what? His life's being poured out for the sake of their faith. I'll give you one more example of how Paul's willing for his life to be poured out. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 8. Paul says to this church in Thessalonica, For now we live if you stand fast in the Lord. What was life for Paul? What was his life committed to? To seeing these people stand fast in Christ. He's willing to pour his life out. He's willing to suffer whatever that entails to magnify Christ, make the gospel known, and see Christ's people stand strong in the faith. Look at, look at how he words it. Look back in your text. Colossians chapter 1 again, where Paul says, I rejoice in my sufferings for you. Who's the for you that he's rejoicing in his sufferings about? Who's he talking about? I rejoice in my sufferings for you. Who's that? Well, he clarifies at the end of the verse, that same verse, Paul says that he does this for the sake of his body, which is the church. So, so who is Paul doing all this for? He's honoring Christ. But practically speaking, who's this investment of his life being made in? It's being made in the church. So Paul is serving Jesus by serving the church, by serving Jesus' people. Now, pause and think about what that means. What had Paul, up until he met Jesus on the road to Damascus, what had Paul lived his life to do? Well, Paul was living his life to eliminate the church. He was going around kicking in the front doors of Christians' homes and dragging them off. He was doing everything in his power to uh, stamp the church off the face of the earth. But do you remember how when Jesus confronted Paul on the Damascus Road and Paul was converted, do you remember the lesson that Jesus taught Paul right away about the church? So Paul's going around persecuting the church, but what did Jesus say to Paul? He said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? What was the lesson that Jesus was teaching Paul right away? That by persecuting the church, Paul had been persecuting Jesus. That, that's how closely Jesus is joined together with his people. So to attack the church is to attack Jesus. But now Paul's telling us that it also works the other way. Listen now. To attack the church is to attack Jesus, but it goes in the other direction. To serve the church is to serve Jesus. To invest yourself in God's people is to serve the Lord. To do everything you can to bring in followers of Jesus to His church. To do everything you can to help followers of Jesus grow in their faith. To do everything you can to help followers of Jesus stand in that faith. Well, that's how we now practically serve the Lord. And so Paul is willing for everything in his life to be poured out, for him to endure all sorts of untold suffering... For the sake of Christ, people. So he's pouring his life out for the sake of the people of the Lord. But the way that Paul describes his sacrifice here has confused a lot of people over the years. Do you see what Paul says about his sufferings? Look again at that passage. Paul says that his sufferings, again verse 24, he says that his sufferings are filling up what's lacking in the afflictions of Christ. Do you see that phrase? His sufferings are filling up what's lacking in the afflictions of Christ. What does that mean? How, how are Paul's sufferings filling up something that's lacking in Christ's suffering? 
Is Paul saying here that, that Jesus and his suffering on the cross didn't quite get the ball to the goal line and so now we have to step in and we have to finish the job? What does it mean that our sufferings fill up what's lacking in Christ's affliction? First, let me say what he's not saying. Paul's not saying that Jesus' work on the cross was insufficient. Okay, we know that because as Jesus hung on the cross, he said, it is finished. We know that because Paul tells us over and over again that through the work on the cross, atonement has been completed. Every sin that would ever be committed by every Christian who would ever live was fully paid for. Okay, so, so the work of atonement is done. Sin debt is fully paid. Our reconciliation to God is complete. God's wrath is fully satisfied. So the work of the cross was complete. But what, is, what does it mean then? that our sufferings fill up what's lacking. Well, there's a great parallel in Philippians chapter 2. Um, I'll, I'll just set the scene for you. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul's writing a letter from prison to the church at Philippi. And the church at Philippi deeply loved Paul. Okay, they cared for Paul, and they knew that Paul was suffering. Paul wrote it from a Philippian prison. When you were a prisoner back then in Rome, you didn't get three hots and a cot. You didn't get all of your meals and all of your clothing provided for you had to provide for all of that stuff. So Paul's in, uh, under house arrest as a prisoner. He's struggling. And so the Philippian church, even though they're dirt poor, loves Paul. And they decide they're going to take up an offering to take care of Paul. So they sacrificially give. They take up this offering. They deeply care for Paul. They're sacrificing for Paul. But there's still something lacking. What's lacking? Well, they're in Philippi. And Paul is way up in Rome. So how is their love for Paul actually going to be communicated to Paul in Rome? How is their sacrifice for Paul going to be connected to Paul in Rome? And the answer is that a man in the church named Epaphroditus steps forward. And Epaphroditus volunteers to make the journey from Philippi to Rome to carry their gift to Paul. And he does it, and he almost dies in the process. He barely survives it, and here's what Paul writes. I want you to listen to the language. Here's what Paul writes about Epaphroditus. This is in Philippians chapter 2. Paul writes, Because for the work of Christ he, that's Epaphroditus, because for the work of Christ he came close to death, not regarding his life, to supply what was lacking in your service toward me. Now do you see that phrase, that Epaphroditus supplied what was lacking it's, it's almost the exact same language that Paul uses in Colossians 1. They filled up. Epaphroditus filled up what was lacking in the church's love for Paul. What does it mean that they filled up what was lacking? How, how did Epaphroditus fill up what was lacking in their love? Well, he filled it up by stepping in and volunteering to suffer to carry their gift to Paul. He stepped in and he was willing to endure hardship to communicate to Paul the church's love. So... Epaphroditus suffered to connect the gap between the church's love and sacrifice and where Paul was in Rome. Okay, so carry that back to Colossians 1. So what does Paul mean when he says that in our sufferings we fill up what's lacking in the affliction of Christ? Well, what he's saying is that we now step in like Epaphroditus. That Christ loves his people and he laid down his life for his people. And his plan is that he's going to bring in a people from all ages a people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. But how does what Christ did 2,000 years ago get connected to the people that he did it for? And the answer is it gets connected to the people that he did it for through us, largely as we suffer. 
As we step forward and say, hey, we'll endure the hardship, we'll sacrifice, we'll do whatever it takes to get this message to the people who need to hear it and to help those people grow in their faith, we'll pour ourselves out in service to the people who Jesus was afflicted for. I, I guess another way to say it would be that Jesus' work on the cross isn't completed until all of his sheep are gathered in underneath their shepherd. And so we fill up the afflictions of Christ by pouring our lives out to see that done. We fill up his afflictions by willing, being willing to suffer and sacrifice and, and endure hardship in order to get this message to his sheep, in order to bring in, in order to build up, in order to strengthen Christ's sheep. So we're called to fill up the afflictions of Christ. And that's how God intended for his church to grow. Now, I use that word intended purposefully. And what I mean by that is uh, suffering for Christians is not a bug, it's a feature. In other words, God intended for the gospel to spread and the church to grow largely through his people enduring hardship. Largely through his people suffering and sacrificing. It's how God, God, God intends the church to march forward not mainly through prosperity, but mainly through adversity. It's as we sacrifice, it's as we suffer, in large part, that God's mission keeps moving forward. Oswald uh, Sanders tells the story of uh, an indigenous missionary in India, this is a number of years ago, who had made it his mission to get the gospel to all of these rural villages in the countryside of India. And most of these villages were, were really hard to get to. A lot of them were connected only by footpath. And so this missionary had to walk everywhere that he went, and he was dirt poor. And so he didn't even have shoes. And so he's, he was walking barefoot all over, going to these different villages to try to present the gospel. And so, so one day he decided to go to a, uh, an especially difficult-to-reach village. It took him all day to make the trip. He walked for hours to get there. And by the time that he got there, he was completely exhausted. But he decided to go on into the village and share the gospel before they shut down for the day. So he, he went into this little village. It di didn't take him long for a crowd to gather up. And nor did it take very long for them to make it clear they weren't interested. They listened to his message. They flatly rejected him, basically ran him out of town. And so this exhausted missionary walked just outside of the village. There was a shade tree, and he sat down underneath this shade tree to rest for a little bit. Well, he was so tired, it didn't take him long before he fell asleep, and he slept hard. And a couple hours later, he woke up, and there was this, this crowd of people hovering around him. So he woke up with a few dozen people staring at him, and he thought he was in trouble. And one of the tribal leaders came over to him and said, someone from our village was walking by, and they saw your blistered, bloody feet. And we decided that you, you have to be a holy man and you must care about us deeply if you traveled that far and suffered that much to get here. So we'd like to hear your message again. And he had a chance to present the gospel again. And this time, scores of the people in that village believed. Well, that's a great picture of him filling up the afflictions of Christ. He, he was willing to endure hardship he was willing to suffer. He was willing to sacrifice in order to make this work that Christ did on the cross known, in order to call in Christ's sheep, in order to build up the body of Christ around the world. And all Christian ministry 
will require some measure of joyful suffering. Okay, this is true for all of us. All Christian ministry will require some level of joyful suffering. Now, it's not always that dramatic as the story that I just gave. But the Christian life is constantly a call to sacrifice good things for better things. The Christian life is constantly a call to sacrifice enjoyable things for eternal things. Well, whether it's the simple choice of, hey, there's another job that offers a little bit more money, but it might pull me away from worship, or it might pull me away from discipling my family and investing in ministry, so I forego something enjoyable for something eternal. That, that is the, the warp and wolf of the Christian life. It's constantly making decisions to sacrifice personally for eternal good. And Paul was willing to do that gladly. So with eternity in view, we're willing to joyfully suffer. That's the first thing. Christian ministry requires joyful suffering. Here's the second part. Number two, Christian ministry requires faithful stewardship. Look at verse 25. Paul says, of which, this is his ministry of the gospel to the church, of which... I became a minister. Again, that's the word servant. I became a servant according to the stewardship from God, which was given to me for you. Do you see that word stewardship? Paul was a servant according to the stewardship of God. If you've been in church very long, you have heard that word steward. And how do you, in what context do you usually hear the word steward? Well, usually we talk about it when it comes to our finances and faithfulness and giving. But Paul says that he, he has a ministry according to God's stewardship. Do you remember what the word stewardship mean? A steward was just a, a slave who had been entrusted as a sort of household manager. So a steward managed an estate for his owner. He would watch over it. He would follow the master's instructions. He would order the estate for the benefit of the owner. And Paul says that's what Christian ministry is about. We're... We're working, we're managing an estate, we're serving a people who don't belong to us. The church is not ours. We're serving people who Jesus bought with his own blood. It's, it's his body, it's his flock, it's his bride. And so Paul saw his ministry as stewarding Christ's estate. Okay, but how do we do that? Okay, get, to get back to what Christian ministry is supposed to look like. How do we do it? Did the master of the estate give Paul any instructions on how he was supposed to oversee it? Did the master of the estate tell Paul how he was supposed to care for his people? He did. Do you see the phrase that Paul uses back to verse 25? Of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God which was given to me for you. Now here's how he's doing that. To fulfill the word of God. If you have the ESV, the ESV translates that. To make the word of God fully known. So, so how would Paul serve the church? What would be the means of Paul building up God's people? Well, Paul would serve the church mainly through the ministry of the word. This is Paul when, when he gets with the elders from the church of Ephesus in Acts chapter 20. And he's reminding them of what his ministry looked like when he was there. And what does Paul say that he had done while he was in Ephesus? He says that he had been faithful to give them the whole counsel of God. This is Paul writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4 where he says, Hey, Timothy, whatever you're doing while you're there, you make sure you preach the word in season and out of season. 
You, you do it when it's light. You do it when it's not light. You do it when there are five people. You do it when there are 500 people. The main way, the main way that Paul would fulfill his ministry was through the ministry of the Word. Why is that so important? Well, because the Word is the tool that God uses to ignite faith in his people. And the Word is the tool that God uses to build faith in his people. So God works through his word to start faith, and God works through his word to strengthen faith. And so if Paul was going to be faithful building into God's people, the main way Paul would do that was through the ministry of the word. He gets a little more detailed about this ministry in the next verse. Look at verse 26. Paul describes it as the mystery which has been hidden from, excuse me, the mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but has now been revealed to his saints. So he describes this ministry of the word as a mystery. Now what does that mean? What's a mystery? When you come across that word mystery in the Bible, and you'll come across it a lot in the New Testament, it's not talking about something that, that's mysterious or something that is spooky. But a mystery in the Bible is something that, that was once hidden, but's now been revealed. Something that was concealed in the Old Testament but now it's been brought to light. So in the Old Testament, this is some grand truth where there were little hints of it, but now in the New Testament, the curtain has been pulled back. That's, that's what a mystery is. Maybe a good way to think about it would be to think of a couple that has just found out they're expecting. So they've just found out that the wife is pregnant, but a family reunion's coming up in two weeks. And so they decide they're not gonna let that news out until the family reunion comes. And so they keep the secret hidden, until the day of the family reunion, and then they broadcast it to everybody. Now, if you're a family member, you might have seen clues leading up to that. You, you might have noticed that she's been sick for the last six weeks. Or you might have noticed you walked past the computer one day and she was uh, looking at cribs on Amazon. There were little clues, but when the day came... The curtain was pulled back and it was revealed. It was brought into the light. That's what a mystery is. It's some grand truth that we get hints about in the Old Testament, but now the curtain is pulled back in the New Testament. And the mystery that Paul's talking about here is the good news about the church. That the Old Testament was clear that, that God was sending a Messiah and that that Messiah was going to suffer for his people. But what wasn't as clear in the Old Testament was what the, was that was that the Messiah's people would include both Jews and Gentiles. Because in the Old Testament, you'll remember that for Gentiles to come into the covenant people, to come worship Yahweh, they basically had to become Jews. They had to get circumcised. They had to follow the dietary laws. They had to keep the feast days. And, and Gentile believers were largely few and far between in the Old Testament. But now in the New Testament, we see clearly that God's plan is He is bringing in a people from all over the world, out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And his grand plan is he's bringing together all these people and making them one under the headship of Christ. This is what Jesus had in mind, by the way, in the gospel, in the gospel of John, when Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. You remember that verse? That's not a verse about singing. You often will hear in church somebody say, hey, let's stand and lift up Jesus because he, if he's lifted up, he'll draw all people. It's a verse about the cross. It's the promise that Jesus being crucified was at the center of God's plan and through that, God was going to draw in all sorts of people, men and women from all over the world. 
Okay, that's the mystery, is that God is now bringing together all kinds of people under the headship of Christ. And here's what Paul adds about that. Verse 27. Paul says, to them. Now, who are the them? Look at the last phrase of verse 26. He revealed it to his saints. To them, so the them are the saints. To them, God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. In other words, God willed to make this grand mystery about the gospel, about Jesus, about his kingdom. God willed to make this known to his people. So these saints in Colossae knew what God was doing. They knew about the gospel. They knew about Jesus. They knew about this grand plan that God's got designed. They knew about all this because God willed them to know all of this. They understood it because God willed them to understand it. Don't just fly past words like that. God willed to make it known to them. If you're a Christian, listen, if you're a Christian, why is it that you get it? Why is it that you understand? You've come to see Jesus for who He is. You've come to see the world through this new lens where it's all about Christ and what God's doing in the world. Is it because you found the special decoder ring? Is it because you're just more clever than everybody else in the world? No, no you understand because God willed you to understand. It's exactly what Jesus is saying in John chapter 6. Listen to John 6 verses 44 and 45. I want to make a parallel between these two verses. Verse 44, Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I'll raise him up at the last day. Now, pause for a minute. So Jesus says, No one comes unless they're drawn. So the question is, so what does it mean to be drawn? Can you give a little more explanation about what that drawing looks like? Yes, the next verse. Verse 45, Jesus continues, it's written in the prophets, they shall all be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Now just notice the similar language. Verse 44 says that only those who are drawn come. Verse 45 says that all those who have heard and learned from the Father come. So what does it mean to be drawn? Well, to be drawn by God means you have supernaturally heard and learned from God. It means you've been supernaturally taught by God. You've supernaturally had your eyes opened by God. I'll give you one more similar verse. Listen to Jesus in Matthew eleven twenty seven. All things have been delivered to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son. And the one to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. So according to Jesus, who knows the Father? Those whom the Son wills to reveal Him. Well, that's the same sort of language Paul uses in Colossians 1. We know this great mystery only because God willed to make it known. So this is meant just to strip away any sort of pride we would feel about being included among the saints. How is it that I was included among the saints? Is it because I was so sharp and so clever? No, it was because God graciously willed you to understand. And you see how this also provides some stability when it comes to Christian ministry. So what needs to happen for the lights to come on? This is our desire in Christian ministry. I want the lights to come on for people. I want people who don't get it to come to see Jesus for who he is and believe and follow Jesus. What has to happen for that to occur? Is it all about how, how snazzy the presentation is and getting the right stage lighting 
And if I can just figure out the right way to handle the invitation and play the right music, to pull on the right heartstrings, that's how you get people to understand. No, I can't make, I can't make any of that happen. Only God can do that. Only God can take out the heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh. Only God can pull back the veil to use 2 Corinthians 4 language. Only God can pull back the veil and help someone see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. All that is above my pay grade. So all you and I can do is to be faithful in preaching and teaching and investing and serving and discipling. And then we just fervently pray and ask God that he would bring the results as he sees fit. That's Paul's understanding of ministry. And I'll point out one other thing in verse 27 and we'll wrap up. Notice what Paul says about this message he's preaching. He describes it as the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. Notice he, he describes it as the riches of this glory. In other words, this message about Jesus is filled with glorious riches. It's the riches of forgiveness. It's the riches of reconciliation. It's the riches of adoption. It's the riches of eternal life. So when we share the gospel, we're not calling people to life in a monastery. When we share the gospel, we're not calling people to abandon everything for nothing. When we share the gospel, we're calling people to come into the glorious riches of Christ. When you try to disciple somebody and help them grow in their faith, you're offering them the best thing that could be offered. You're offering to help them move further into the riches of Christ. So, so why would we ever be apologetic about that? Why would we ever be ashamed? Why would we ever feel like we need to do anything more than that? We don't. The way that we do ministry, the way that we make much of Christ is by staying faithful to this message, by devoting ourselves to this message, by being faithful to this message, by suffering and sacrificing for this message, by investing in people for the sake of this message. And then we trust that God will bring results. So listen, you and I, Christian, we have been entrusted with a role in our master's household. We've been entrusted to care for his flock. We've been entrusted to invest in his bride. And you have to believe that there's no more important work that you could possibly be involved in. And doing this isn't just part of the Christian life. The Christian life is not just about an hour that I give on Sundays. This is life. This is why Paul would say, for to me, to live is Christ. Life is Christ. It's knowing Christ. It's my life, to use Paul's language, being poured out in service to Christ. It's my life being used up in service to Christ. And my life is used up in service to Christ as it's poured out in service to his people. As my life is spent helping others come to faith and grow in that faith. And so as we do that, we're willing to embrace hardship. We fill up the afflictions of Christ. Because our goal is, at the end, we want nothing more than for the Lord to find us to be faithful. Remember that word steward Paul uses? We just want to be found to be faithful stewards. That we, we took advantage of the position that the Lord placed us in, in his household, and we were faithful to it. And listen, let me say one more thing. We don't do this in hopes that we'll win ourselves a place with God. We're willing to suffer. We invest in his people. We do all that out of gratitude because we recognize that our place with God has already been won. 
Jesus has done all the work to win our salvation. Through his work on the cross, for everyone who believes, our standing with God is absolutely anchored, absolutely rooted, absolutely secure. And that's what we're reminding ourselves of every time, every month, when we come back to the Lord's table. Right? We come back and we take part in the Lord's Supper to remind ourselves that our position at God's table, our position amongst God's family was secured for us not by what we do, but because of what Jesus has done for us. His blood was poured out, his life was taken, his life was given, his body was broken at the cross so that we now have fellowship with God through him. So we're going to come back to the Lord's table this morning as a chance to remember, as a chance to express gratitude, and as a chance to commune with the Lord. So we're going to take a few minutes and prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper. So I'm going to give you a few minutes to pray there in your seat. Ask God that your life would be poured out like Paul's for this purpose, that your life would be used up for this purpose, that we'd be willing to endure suffering, whatever that looks like, for this purpose.